house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. Doesn't everybody? Yesterday you were a loan shark. Yeah, but I was never that into it. <clears throat> you think the movie business is any different? Ray, look at me. Why don't you take a look at that? You must bring something heavy to the deal. I do. Me. I think you ought to turn around and go back to Miami. You're a stuntman, huh? Yeah. You're any good. I mean, he's got no respect for us. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's been promised a job working in Donna Murphy's frame store next summer. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer for Decider.com, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my co-host, entertainment writer Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. How's it going? It's going. It's okay. I'm fighting some sinus stuff, so apologies, yeah. listeners, if I sound like I'm chain smoking. You don't owe anybody any money. You haven't faked your own death. You are not wearing bad platinum wigs for horror movies. I feel like uh, I want to cover you, all the bases here. You can't see me right now. I am, actually. <laughs> I am wearing, wearing that wig. That Karen Flores wig that she should have, like, sold a line of wigs after that movie. We'll talk about it. Because this week we're talking about a pivotal movie in the long Oscar-adjacent story of John Travolta's mid-90s career comeback. There's also a pivotal movie in the long Oscar-adjacent story of Elmore Leonard adaptations. It is the rare movie about making movies that didn't attract Oscar's attention. We are talking about 1995's Get Shorty. Chris, here's... I don't have a problem. I just not want to point out for our listeners that we realize that this is now the second week in a row where we're doing a movie that we both like. Largely. I promise. Like. Largely. I promise this is not going to be a trend. I know that, like... <laughs> we'll I get think... back to some, like, real, like, bad shit. Or at we'll least, like, milquetoast, some... mediocre stuff. That's I mean, the sweet spot, yeah. I don't love everything about Get Shorty. Not in the way that... Or, I mean, even The Door in the Floor last week has some problems, but yeah. I love that movie. Yes. This movie, I do have some problems, and some of it is just the age and the time period mm-hmm. of the movie. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm sure we'll get into it, but, like, there's some racist shit in this movie. Otherwise... There's some stuff happening. There's some stuff in this movie. I do want to, like, I just want to clarify that, like, we're not shifting our mission statement to, like, near misses at the Oscars or movies that were maybe too good to get Oscar attention. Yes, Um, because it's also not just the second week in a row that we're talking about a movie that we like, but this one got very, very close. Definitely closer than The Door and the Floor did. Oh, 100% true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is one category in particular that I will definitely bring up later that makes it shocking that this was not an Oscar nominee. And I also feel like because it came so close, I think it's interesting to talk about then why it didn't, that ultimately it came up completely empty. And 
in a way that like there are a lot of different avenues that could have you know led to some sort of nomination for this movie and it didn't happen it was such a big success at the golden globes the travolta momentum was so strong after pulp fiction we'll get to that um that the fact that it didn't you know there's a lot to sort of puzzle through there and we're gonna puzzle through it but before we do chris it is your turn this week to take up the challenge of summarizing our movie of the week in 60 seconds or less. I'm going to pull up my handy-dandy little phone timer here. Um, da, 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 da. I feel like I have the most challenging movie yet for the 60-second plot, because even though we've said we like it, this is one convoluted movie. <laughs> it's both convoluted and yet, like, lackadaisical laissez-faire about it it's not i wouldn't call it a tightly plotted movie even though you can definitely tell it's based off of a novel in the way that it like keeps resurfacing sort of strands of the plot like a 10 second plot description of this movie would be easier than a 60 second because it's like i think that's right you to think about fitting as much of it in boil it down to the elevator pitch exactly but you're getting 60 seconds so use them wisely if you are ready to go i will hit the start button ready i am ready and go Okay, so in Get Shorty, John Travolta stars as Chili Palmer. He's a Miami mobster whose boss Momo dies of a heart attack right at the beginning, and that puts Chili in the employ of his rival Barboni, which is played by the great Dennis Farina. Um, Barboni sends Chili to collect a debt from uh, David Paymer, basically playing David Paymer, um, <laughs> who inadvertently had faked his own death in like a plane crash and went away with like $300,000. Um, so somehow, and for reasons, seconds. Uh, Chili ends up in Hollywood where he meets a like C-list movie director who's like somehow not from the 50s. His name's Harry Zim. He's played by Gene Hackman. And then with uh, Zim's girlfriend um, played by Rene Russo, basically playing Rene Russo, um, Chili devises a pitch to basically make the David Paymer biopic and uh, use the money that David Paymer stole as like the budget. Three, two, one... Wow, I had time to spare. Yeah, except you didn't mention Martin Weir as the titular Shorty. But oh, you know. Yeah, okay, so yes, that was like the <laughs> large thing. Shorty, the titular Shorty, is played by Danny DeVito, who is like the, going to be the star of the movie. It's Renee Russo's ex husband. Nor did you mention Delroy Lindo, my favorite performance in the movie. Uh, um, Delroy Lindo is so. Well, like. It's, There's a part in the trailer that I didn't clip, even though I wanted to. I Finding, you know, a tight 30 seconds to clip from that trailer was a little bit of a challenge. But there's a part where Delroy Lindo is talking to Chili Palmer and um, is asking him, how, how do you expect you're going to get Martin Weir to star in your movie? And Chili just goes, I'm going to walk up to him. I'm going to pull out my gun and I'm going to say, you know do this movie or you're dead. And they cut back to Delroy Lindo and he just sort of like stops for a second. He's like, I wonder if that would work. And it's such a funny line reading and it's such a like change of pace. And his character is definitely the heavy in this movie. So like there's a lot of him being sort of a threatening kind of guy, but he's such an interesting actor that he makes these like very probably like scenes that could have been very traditional you know, I'm the heavy in a mob movie, even I'm the heavy in a mob comedy. Um, And he takes these line readings and he takes these little scenes and he makes them both funnier, more off kilter while not sacrificing 
how scary the guy is, how sort of, you know, what a bad guy that guy is. And I love it. It's just, it's classic, uh, like unflashy Delroy Lindo making a movie better. Do you know what I mean? He's so good at that. I, yeah. And like, when I mentioned that the movie was like being racist, it's like you kind of, you're way more in a contemporary context on Delroy Lindo's side and, like, this is, like, a yeah. quintessential Delroy Lindo performance. So it's, like, we're just going to call him Delroy Lindo. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, John Travolta at one point, like, makes a driving Miss Daisy joke at his expense. And it's so gross. But, like, <laughs> so in that regard, yeah. like, it puts us in support of Delroy Lindo, who's supposed to be the villain in this movie. If this movie truly has, like, an outright villain. Because I think it kind of wants you to like everybody. Um, yeah, even down to like Delroy's like bodyguard slash like hired muscle played by James Gandolfini of all people, um, with like the dirtiest, nastiest ponytail. Oh, yes. Oh God, thank you for bringing that up. It is true. Here's what I will say about the story in general. It's the kind of story that is very, very impressed with itself for coming up with a name like Chili Palmer because they say his name so often in the movie like it i mean that's why he's the only discernible character name because he has a name like chili palmer and they say it a thousand times like you said because they're so proud of it and then every other person maybe with the exception of danny devito is just playing off of their own persona in a way right i well i'll 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 caveat that a little bit i think the central quartet of people have really really good names because they're like like harry zim just sounds like who that character is, which is a sort of slick Hollywood producer of garbage. Like that is, that's a perfect name for that, uh, for that kind of person. And I also will always remember Karen Flores because I'm like, did you really want to cast a white woman as Karen Flores? Um, Not that I would complain about having Renee Russo involved because she is, especially now from a 2018 perspective, you're just like, come back to us, Renee Russo. Like, I know we've done her so wrong. I was talking to a friend last night. What were we, who were we mentioning? We were talking about some actress and we we're just like, man, whatever happened to her? And now it's like, every time we say that, we're just like, Oh God, what did happen to her? Because well, Nightcrawler a few years ago, like there were the little whisperings of like, well, maybe we can make this happen for Renee Russo because she's really good in that movie. My thing with Nightcrawler, which is not a movie I love as much as a lot of other people love Nightcrawler, is, and especially with her performance, which I think is great, which is, you know, one of the best, one of the juiciest roles she had been given in a while, is that, like, even in this sort of best role that she had gotten since, I will say, the Thomas Crown Affair, probably, is this villain character whose sexuality, her being sort of, like, sexually available to Jake Gyllenhaal is painted as part of her moral deficit in a way that feels, if not hacky, then at least, like, retrograde in the way we used to write about women. And that, I don't know, that bugged me about that movie. There's a lot of things that bug me about that movie, but that especially. I would definitely agree with you as far as the writing is concerned for that character. Like, on the page, it's a problem for me, but that's one of the stronger points, I think, of Renee Russo's performance is that she makes it a lot more nuanced and interesting than that. I think she makes a character like Karen Flores a lot more interesting, even though that character is very, very, very basically boiled down to the sort of woman who is on 
Chili's arm for the bulk of this movie. And even though she is the catalyst for a lot of it, where like she is the one who is like Harry Zim is staying at her house when Travolta comes to find him. And like she kind of puts them all together in a way that sets the rest of the plot in motion. But then she really just sort of recedes to being on his arm and sort of explaining things to him every once in a while about what, you know, how this system works, how this Hollywood system works. And I would have killed to have a movie that gives Karen more to do. Yes. Like she gets like, she actually gets kidnapped in this movie. Like she becomes a fucking damsel in distress in this movie in a way that like, ugh. And then she picks up a gun and can't shoot it properly. There's a lot of that. Like, it's it's retrograde, right? Yeah. I mean, like, again, we have problems with this movie, even though it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of it's, fun. It's not perfect. But, like... It's 1995. Renee I will, I part will... of what makes it fun. Because, yeah. like, you need someone like her to kind of, like, cut through everyone's bullshit. Because she does see through everyone. Oh, right. And right? That, like, that is definitely a performance that. thing, too. That is one thing where, like, you yeah. do not need to give Renee Russo a whole lot of time or a whole lot of runway to get to a point where she can see right through somebody's bullshit. And that is, on um, like, that is a compliment to her, for sure. We love you, Renee. We love Noted you, Renee. member of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Renee Russo. <laughs> As somebody who sticks up for Thor The Dark World, at least partially, um, I thought she had a really great scene in that movie. Um, she finally got to, like, fight. It was fun. It was cool. I don't know. Okay, Semi-justice so for Thor The Dark World. You mentioned Delroy Lindo is your favorite performance in the movie. Can I mention yeah. mine? Yes, we haven't really talked about. My favorite was Gene Hackman. I will say... I used to, so, Chris, I'm not going to blow your mind or anything by telling you I was an Oscar nerd when I was in high school. Um, I want to sort of open the window a little bit into my specific Oscar nerdery, and then I will absolutely let you go back to, like, loving on Gene Hackman, because it is only correct that you do so. So, this was before IMDb really made it very easy to access all the information you wanted about all the movies, right? So, yeah, because, like, early IMDb, like, the children today do not understand what early... I, like, when IMDb was first coming up and, like, you could go back to movies you've already visited on there before and there was, like, more useful information on, yes. like, the trivia pages, not just, like... Yes. You know, or even just, tr- like, all the information about casts and directors and everything. So before yeah. IMDb... I had two things. One of them was a CD-ROM that came packaged with my Encarta uh, encyclopedia that was called yeah. Cine- that was called Cinemania that like was essentially IMDb on a CD-ROM and it had video clips when like nothing had video clips and it fucking blew my mind and I'm not going to talk about that too much right now. We'll talk about it another time, but I want to like throw that out there in case anybody else had that because that was like 1994 Joe was living for that and like that taught me a lot about movies from before I was born. But also what I had instead of IMDb was a big thick book called the Leonard Malton movie guide. And I would get, I would get a new Leonard Malton movie guide every few years to just like replenish. And then what I would do because I was not super popular and had a lot of free time is I would go through my Leonard Malton book and literally page by page and write down the title and the year of every movie I had seen. So, that's why I'm really good with years. We talk about like why, you know, if you giving me a clue from what year a movie was, was really handy. A lot of that is because of that. 
Um, and so I would go through all of that. And then when I would be done with that little project, I would then go through the most recent years and do my like little fake Oscars, which is a thing I continue to do to this day. Um, and Gene Hackman was absolutely one of my supporting actor like nominees back then. And I don't know whether that would still be the case, me having seen sort of the breadth of everything from 95, but I think he's great. And it kind of puzzles me that Hollywood, who loved Gene Hackman to the tune of two Academy Award wins already by the time this movie came out, wouldn't get on board with a Gene Hackman performance that is this fun and this sort of big and kind of hammy, but in a really good way. I don't know. Back back to you on that. Okay, so Oscar, I don't think, really appreciates comedic Gene Hackman in Royal a way. That, I, that's, yep. that's my favorite Gene Hackman is when he gets to be funny and, like, you watch this performance and it's such a precursor to the Royal Tenenbaums. And, like, this is maybe this is just, like, my personal taste for this performer when he's, like, playing just such an obvious asshole. Yeah. And, it, like, he just, like... I don't know. Gene Hackman is funny playing that character who is also a little dim-witted and not self-aware. His character arc throughout the movie is very interesting because it never really gets... You know, the 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 actual script doesn't ever really point it out explicitly, but watching him sort of take his cues from Chili and then try to become sort of a hard ass later in the movie, only to get it, have it like blow up in his face, is very funny and clever to me. And the movie, well, my favorite scene in the movie is when he calls Dennis Farina out of the blue, drunk yes. off his ass, yes, and tries to intimidate Dennis Farina over the phone by That's basically I mean. just mimicking, yeah. Chili Palmer's like catchphrases. It's so funny. It's so funny. And then watching that all like crumble away when Farina comes to like see him in his office is, ugh. this is a movie. So the premise of this movie, I think, is one of those things where you could see almost the pitch meeting where somebody is just like, the movie business is so much like the mob. Why don't we make a movie where a mob like a loan shark, uh, decides he wants to become a movie producer because it's basically the same business. And you can see where that pitch would have been like, yes, because we can do X and Y and Z. And the movie really just sort of hews to that. And of course, this is all based on an Elmore Leonard book. And we're going to get to the Elmore Leonardness of it all in a second when we talk about why, you know, it had Oscar buzz. But it's it relies very much on that sort of central premise. And I think the Harry Zim character is the perfect foil for chili in that way and hackman hackman's such a gifted actor i've always said about hackman that like one of the great things about him is he shows up on screen and whether if he's supposed to be a good guy or the bad guy or the you know the comedy guy it takes you no time at all to just be like yep that's right like he makes perfect sense as the hero he makes perfect sense as the villain he makes perfect sense as a comedic character like this there is no learning curve with the audience with him like you got it right away and there are few actors who can really be that versatile yeah you know so let's talk about chris why get shorty had Oscar buzz to begin with. Because, I mean, this is a comedy. It's directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who at this point had done the Addams Family movies. And that doesn't really scream Oscar buzz to me. So why would a movie like this have been expected to be an Oscar player to begin with? I think the 
biggest factor, probably the one that there's a lot we could talk about with is someone we haven't really talked about much yet is John Travolta, um, because this is coming right off of Pulp Fiction um, and his resurgence, which was a big deal at the time. Huge deal. Um, Oh, huge deal. One of the biggest stories in Hollywood was that this beloved actor who we all thought had gone away came back in such an interesting way in Pulp Fiction. And we we did a test episode before we started with uh, our proper run of this podcast on the movie Phenomenon, which maybe we'll one day revisit that. So let's maybe not get too much into that. But it's a weird movie. It's a weird movie, but like the the fact that John Travolta didn't win the Oscar for Pulp Fiction, only Tom Hanks doing. Forrest Gump, the like perfect storm of Tom Hanks playing Forrest Gump could have stopped Travolta from winning an Oscar that year. Like that was, it was kind of an unstoppable Forrest and Hanks, right? Where like he's the in the best picture front runner, the runaway best picture front runner. He's playing such an incredibly quirky and likable character who had fully been embraced by the bosom of middle American pop culture. Like there was really no way that he was losing. And because of that, the immediate aftermath of the 94 Oscars was like, oh, what's John Travolta going to follow this up with? Because he's going to get Yeah, where can we reward him now? Yeah. Because now all of a sudden we owe him. And And there was like a few years where it wasn't just John Travolta was in awards consideration, but John Travolta's movies were actually making a shit ton of money. He was a box office draw after Pulp Fiction. And I think following Pulp Fiction with Get Shorty, which is enough of a different kind of movie that it felt like his career was progressing, and yet it's exactly the kind of... Like, he's still playing a mob-adjacent, like, tough guy, right? Like, it's a different kind of guy, if but, you're watching this in the years after Pulp Fiction, it feels like it's in the same vein, but right. a straight comedy this time. So it reminds you a lot of Vinny Vega. He couldn't have gone from Pulp Fiction right to Michael, but like Get Shorty was the conduit that took him from one to the other. And Get Shorty is so well-reviewed, and Travolta is the absolute epicenter of the good reviews. Like People were in love with the persona that Travolta was putting on screen. And Chili's a much more lovable character than Vincent Vega. Like, as much as, like, Vincent Vega was the guy for the critics, and Chili Palmer's the guy for the public. He's the one for the fans. He's, yeah, that's essentially it. Shout out Matt Patches. Um, but, like, that's that's the dynamic at work here. And it's such a popular movie. And then, so, it goes into award season, getting really big reviews, and Travolta's a huge story. And you've got Hackman, who's got two Oscars, and DeVito, who is, you know, a huge, you know, center of Hollywood kind of guy as a producer and as a movie star. And, like, Rene Russo, Bette Midler's in this movie, uncredited. It's, you know, this is a very Hollywoody movie. And then so it goes into the Golden Globes, and it gets... I can't remember how many nominations. Hold up. Let me see if I can look this up. It got three... Three nominations for the Globes wins, but like three significant ones. Yeah, because so go into that. John Travolta won 
the comedy musical best actor category. It was also nominated for best picture, but it was nominated for best screenplay at the Globes, which we've talked about this before about we've how that's about it before the one of the more exclusive categories at the Globe because it's not broken up even into adapted and original. So you tend to think like the five movies selected for screenplay. So that year it's interesting because you have Sense and Sensibility, which wins. That was the big Emma Thompson wins for Sense and Sensibility. And this was the speech where she gives the speech as Jane Austen. It's a phenomenal speech. You should go and look it up. It's wonderful. I will um, post it to our Tumblr page if I if the link's available. So the other nominees are, God, Braveheart as a screenplay nominee is gross. But like Braveheart, the ultimate best picture winner. Dead Man Walking, which was a acting actor, actress, director nominee. Mr. Holland's Opus, which was got a Best Actor nomination for Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, the American President, which we'll talk about when we talk about the comedy awards at the Globes this year, because that's another movie that it's, you know, striking out entirely at the Oscars was, like, mystifying to me. And that was, of course, Aaron Sorkin's script that ended up being so influential for, like, the rest of his career, honestly. But that's an inter- That's also a six-nominee category for the Globes, which they sometimes do. It's interesting what managed to survive and what didn't really make it to the Oscars from there. But you would have thought that Get Shorty was on their way. because So it gets the screenplay nominee- nomination. It gets the motion picture comedy nomination, which it loses to Babe. Babe on its way to becoming a Best Picture nominee. And then Travolta goes and beats out none other than, like, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Steve Martin, Patrick Swayze. Like, that is a very, like, favorite sons kind of a category. It's a cool lineup, too. It's a cool lineup. I mean, lineup. especially after Pulp Fiction, you can definitely see how John Travolta would have been the front runner for this win. Um, we should mention Patrick Swayze was nominated for Tu Wong Fu, which is just outright wonderful. It's outright wonderful. So, okay. Wesley Snipes should be there too. We should distinguish that John Leguizamo was nominated in supporting, but Wesley Snipes should be there as well. As Nagzima. Nagzima Jackson. God, Wong Fu, I watched that again recently within the last few years. And that is not a perfect movie, but god damn it, that is a perfect Saturday afternoon nothing to do. I'm just gonna pop on a movie. movie. Watch with it's your friends. So likable. It's so much fun. You forget how many people show up once they show up in that small town. That small town that I guarantee was filmed on the same studio lot as Phenomenon, speaking of Phenomenon. Um Oh definitely. But that Black like Danner has one of my favorite line readings ever into Wong Fu when they're talking about like the Pie Festival and like what it is or like if it's even called a festival, she's like, we bake the pies, then we eat the pies, and then we go home. <laughs> the Strawberry Pie Festival. Stalker Channing in that movie is an honest-to-God, like, revelation. I love her so much in that. Okay, so the comedy categories at the Globes that year, the, the nominees for Best Picture Musical Comedy. It was Babe, which I said won, Get Shorty, The American President, Sabrina, which, like, that's so Globesy because, like, kind of nobody liked that movie even though it was i feel like it was a box office success but like i think critics kind of hated that movie that was a remake that nobody really liked and then toy story which like huge success and obviously like you know the tip of the spear for pixar that is a all-timer of a lineup and the fact that only babe ends up making it to the oscars from that group is 
shitty, especially in a year that has such a terrible Best Picture winner in Braveheart. Like, I'm right. not going to, I don't have issue with Sense and Sensibility or Apollo 13 or, well, and that was also, okay, so this is the other thing. This was the year that Harvey Weinstein decided he was going to go for degree of difficulty points and get Il Postino nominated in Best Picture and Best... Did he also get Best Director? And Best Actor, which was a posthumous nomination. Criminy. Like, well, that was his whole hook, right? Like, the actor had died, and it's this sentimental movie, and he's, like, Harvey's going to flex his Hollywood muscle and get this movie nominated. And, of course, this was the year before... The English Patient really, like, you know, finally gave Miramax its first win. But it's infuriating that, A, a shitty movie like Braveheart, and, B, this, like, fully manufactured story for El Postino managed to crowd out movies like Get Shorty and The American President. And, like, even in Toy Best Story. Picture, Toy Story. Like, Dead Man Walking doesn't get a Best Picture nomination. Leaving Las Vegas doesn't get a Best Picture nomination. They show up in other categories. You have but, to imagine Leaving Las Vegas was probably the closest of all of the movies we're talking about. Probably. Even Leaving Las Vegas... Because it got the Lone Director nomination. Well, there were two of it them. It had the reviews. Both Dead Man Walking and Leaving Las Vegas got Lone Director nominations. That was a three-for-five uh, yeah. matchup, which, you know... <laughs> Because Apollo 13 could have been called the front runner going into that year. And then Sense and Sensibility beats it up for the Globe. And then Ron Howard doesn't get nominated for Best Director. Which completely derails it at Oscar. Completely derails it at Oscar. And then all of a sudden it's like, what do we have? Oh, we have celebrity director Mel Gibson. And so that's the direction we're going to go in. But, like, 95 at the Oscars is kind of a mess. Even though I feel like there's some really good stuff that ends up making it and ends up getting rewarded. But, like, I'm still the one. I know we talk every week about how, like, Kevin Spacey's a piece of shit, and he is. But, like, I haven't gone back and revisited The Usual Suspects, but I cannot overstate the importance of The Usual Suspects to, like, my development as a movie dork. Like, that movie, I was 15 years old, and that was a fucking film, man. Like, that was... I mean, it was definitely formative for me as well. But, like, you want to talk about the growth of someone as a cinephile. Like, at that time, I was all about what Kevin Spacey's doing in that movie. But you watch it now, and the one that I'm, like, fascinated by when I rewatch that movie is Gabriel Byrne, who, like, never registered for that movie. He's doing a really, really... I thought you were going to say Del Toro, who, like, Benicio Del Toro is doing the most in that movie. Like, honest to God. No, but, like, Gabriel Byrne has the most difficult role... Because he's got to make entirely you, thankless. He's got to make you think he's the bad guy for most of that movie, and then have like to Kevin make Spacey you feel gets the payoff because he gets yeah. to pull one over on you. Gabriel Byrne doesn't get to do that. I still think Spacey's great. I think Spacey and Chaz Palminteri as a back and forth are like the spark so of that movie. I think that stuff is really, really fantastic because it becomes more than just a frame story. But again, I feel like The Usual Suspects might be the least revisitable movie now where you go back and it's cause it's not just Spacey. It's Brian Singer's directing. It's fucking Stephen Baldwin is there. Yeah. Like there's a lot going back where you're just like, Ugh. and there's like a lot of like, as most movies about macho criminals were back then, a lot of homophobia, a lot of like, you know, shitty dialogue that the audience is supposed to enjoy rather than, you know, be offended by. Yeah. So, 95 Oscars were interesting, and Get Shorty gets none of that. Like, it's absolutely none of it. And 
it's wild to me. It's shitty. Because, like, it just seems like it would be so easy for it to slip into a lot of these categories. Like, even supporting actor, it, like, it seems like even Gene Hackman or Delroy Lindo, who we both praised here, could have easily slipped into this lineup. It's a fairly strong supporting actor lineup, especially if you, like me, still sort of, you know, respect the Spacey performance. I love Brad Pitt and 12 Monkeys, and I love that that was a nomination. That was one of my favorite, like, pure Hollywood nominations because it's like Brad Pitt was, you know, golden God, Brad Pitt for, for a few years there. And then this well, was, at this point he was pretty boy, Brad Pitt. And it was like, Oh, he played crazy. Like, but he's, he's maybe so, wrong, nominated for the wrong reasons, but he's incredible in the movie. He's so much fun to watch in that movie. I swear to God, like that is a movie that is a rewatchable movie. 12 monkeys. I will say that. And he is so much fun to watch completely go full ham sandwich but like that's what you want out of that movie that's what you want out of that performance ed harris is great in apollo 13 and maybe should have won um that's one of his like several performances nominations where he maybe should have won it feels like he was maybe the best in his category three out of his four nominations i'm assuming you are omitting pollock no, I'm omitting the hours, even though that's a performance uh, that I'm I used to like because you know how hard I write for the hours. And I was always like, even I don't think Ed Harris is really good, but like he's better than I think. I think he's great in Pollock. <laughs> like, I think um, he's great in The Truman Show. I think he's great in Apollo 13. Whenever people bring up how much they hate Ed Harris in the hours, my mind always goes to our favorite <laughs> who originally shot that role was Jelko Ivanic. Yeah, that's wild. And they reshot all of the stuff with Ed Harris. That's fucking wild. Tim Roth was nominated for Rob Roy, which I only saw Rob Roy once, and it was fully to see if you saw uh, Liam Neeson's genitals underneath the skirt in Rob Roy. That's because I had heard that, that like, well, no, because he talked about in interviews about how he filmed with the the kilt on, and he didn't wear anything under it. And so I fully rented Rob Roy from the library so I could see if you could see anything of Liam Neeson's because at that point Liam Neeson was like a wildly like sexy actor to me. Teenager's hood is weird. And then the surprise nominee that year was James Cromwell for Babe, which ultimately I'm kind of surprised he didn't win. I'm surprised he didn't win. Like Babe, you people forget what a sensation Babe was at the time. Like, people loved that movie. People still love that movie, but people were in love with that movie. That movie came very close to winning Best Picture. Can we talk about Best Actor and John Travolta a little yes, bit? Yes, let's. Because I am... There's, I mean, like, there's one performance I'll probably just, like, side-eye here. Well, let's start at, that, at the top, In that I'm though. surprised. It's hard for comedy to get nominated, we should say. Like, yes. something we'll probably talk about ad nauseum on this podcast. But... The lineup, you have the winner, Nicolas Cage. So all through that year, everybody figured it was a race between Nicolas Cage and Sean Penn, even though Nicolas Cage kept winning everything. And Sean Penn was sort of like the silent second place, where, like, I don't think he even showed up to the Oscars that year. That was during his keeps getting nominated but won't show up because he's pissy Joaquin Phoenix about things. Um, And Cage ends up sweeping everything that year. But everybody else besides Penn felt like, extra you know what i mean yeah. like like bonus content so i think i know what one you're going to side eye and for sentimental reasons i can't agree with you but go on 
Okay, so you mentioned Sean Penn, Dead Man Walking. We yes. also talked about Massimo Troisi for Il Postino. Anthony Hopkins, which showed up for Nixon, which is just like as soon as that casting happens, <laughs> like the yeah. Oscar buzz is going to happen, and then if it's halfway decent, there's the nomination. The one I'm side-eyeing, which I, I think is perfectly fine, I perfectly fine, is Richard Dreyfuss for Mr. Holland's Opus. It's such a sentimental nomination. It's such a, like, we loved this character, so we are going to give you a nomination. It's... I get it. I get all of it. Like, I watched this movie a million times in, like, middle school music classes. Ah, yeah, of course. It's... It's fun. Like, John Travolta is firing on way more interesting levels in Get Shorty than I agree. Richard Dreyfuss does. I agree. I But I... Like, here's my thing. A... I didn't like El Postino. I thought it was boring. B. I haven't seen El Postino. I, I'm don't. sure it's lovely, but I also assume it's part of the Chocola cinematic universe. Yes. It's, there's no need to see it. B. I was resentful of Harvey Weinstein for, you know, strong arming it into the category. C. He was already dead. He wasn't going to be sad if he didn't get a nomination. So, like, give Travolta that nomination. That's what I say. That, But I also feel like Michael Douglas should have been nominated for the American president. So maybe that's... 1,000%. And maybe he's doing the Richard Dreyfus sentimental fave nomination better than Dreyfus, so maybe that's what you do. I am yeah. saying this as somebody who fucking loves Nixon and would, like, from my cold dead hands, would I get rid of any no- nomination for Nixon? Because I think that's an amazingly good movie. I haven't seen it enough to remember it. I probably saw it, like, a year or so after it came out when it's I was too young fully to really insane. go for it. And Hopkins is fully insane in it, but like I appreciate the shit out of it for being that. I appreciate Anthony Hopkins mostly when he's insane. You really, really need to follow him on Twitter. He posts some of the most oh God. bonkers <laughs> bullshit, and it's fantastic. I saw that one meme that they made of him like doing the POV camera of him like dancing around his dressing yeah. room, and it has unsettled me to this day. <laughs> like fully, fully shook forever and ever. Okay, so. This we've sort of gotten into the downfall of it, but I want to talk about how it now falls into this category of undervalued Elmore Leonard adaptations when it comes to the Academy, where I feel like the big Elmore Leonard adaptations in movies have been Get Shorty, have been Out of Sight, which comes along in 1998, and then the one that got a modicum of Oscar success was Jackie Brown in 97, and that's only attributable to Robert Forster getting the supporting actor nomination. Like, for a movie as anticipated as Jackie Brown was, like the, you know, the big Tarantino follow-up to Pulp Fiction, the fact that that was the biggest nomination that it got was a disappointment then. And it's, it's strange, because I feel like you watch those three movies, and those are movies made by Quentin Tarantino... Steven Soderbergh, and like even Barry Sonnenfeld, who is not like in that league, but he has a very distinctive style, right? Mm-hmm. Like you see most, like you see the Adams Family movies, you see Men in Black, you know you're watching a Barry Sonnenfeld movie. And that all three of those movies, my dominant impression is this is such an Elmore Leonard movie. Like his style comes through so strongly in all of those movies that you can like absolutely connect those three movies to each other way more than you can connect, you know out of sight to other Soderbergh movies. And even Jackie Brown, like Jackie Brown has a lot of Tarantino in it too. But I always think of that as an Elmore Leonard movie, like first and foremost. I don't know if I'm, you know, up a creek on that one, but. 
Well, my perception, at least, of Elmore Leonard at the time, because my dad read a lot of Elmore Leonard, is that it's pulpy. So maybe there's a certain respectability thing, even if you're talking about working with respected filmmakers, if it's easy for people to kind of whiff off his material for some reason, you know, even if you're talking about a formidable movie. It's pulpy it's pulpy in a sort of familiar way, which makes it different than, you know, then you can't get people being like, it's like nothing we've ever seen before when it's just like, it's, it's a familiar kind of, you know, warm afternoon kind of a movie. You just really enjoy yourself while you're watching these things. Like that's the, I think that is the dominant feature of an Elmore Leonard adaptation. It's just like, sit back and enjoy it because you are going to have a really good time with it. And the vibe is going to be more chill than the circumstances would seem to demand. Like it's about, you know, criminals and violence and heists and, you know, plots on plots. And ultimately the vibe is just like fun. And the dialogue is stylized just enough to be, you know, zippy and you're going to have a really good time with it. And I wonder if, that takes away a little bit of the edge that Oscar voters like where, you know, it's a little more serious. The stakes are higher or something like that. Um, it's interesting to me to the anecdote at the time was that Travolta was the one who fought for the very distinctive Elmore Leonard dialogue to be left in the movie that the studio wanted MGM, I believe is the studio and they wanted to sort of flatten it out and make it more, palatable make it less odd i would say Mm -hmm. and ultimately when they brought on travolta because travolta was like your classic ninth choice like everybody all the major a-listers passed on this movie or like weren't able to make it happen and then it fell to travolta this the idea is that it like they were going with travolta even before pulp fiction happened and then pulp fiction happened and everybody's like yeah we're fucking doing it now did you know that devito was originally going to play chili Okay. Exactly. And the fact that at the end of the movie, Chili legitimately goes, where he says something about him not liking Martin Weir in the performance. He's like, he's too short. And I'm like, yeah, kinda. Like, it just doesn't work for me. And it's odd to me. Like, part of it was that he had signed on as a producer. He had, I'm pretty sure, bought the rights to the book. And so I think that, you know, factored into it. And ultimately, he couldn't do it because he was directing Matilda and that's why they had to go to a different actor and that he could only play the smaller role of Martin Weir smaller ha 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 um but it's so hey, weird. that means that the film adaptation of Matilda still got to happen ha! you know what this is all fortuitous for oh everyone. worth it but yeah the the sort of roundabout direction so do you want to see the list of all the a-listers who turned down the role of Chili according this is all according to IMDb trivia which I will take as gospel because I don't know. Um, Michael Keaton, Bruce Willis, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman. All of them, yes. But they say that DeVito was Sonnenfeld's first choice for the role of Chili Palmer. Which is Yeah, so and like, uh, say what we will about John Travolta. Like, John Travolta is going to be more fun in this role than any of those people. He's perfect for this. Especially He's mid-90s John Travolta. Because there's also a sense of Travolta that, like, even, like, when he's pl- trying to play a tough guy, like, in this, 
that there's a little theatricality to him and like it fits yeah. perfectly with this role it like and and he's having fun and it's not to the point where he's taking himself so seriously yes absolutely so yeah i don't know it's a bummer that this movie didn't get better oscar attention because i think it would have been very deserving i never saw the sequel did you ever see be cool i did it's trash yeah it got really really terrible reviews it's only it was like one of the most unpleasant in theater experiences i've ever had i hated it what so much. what was the big problem with it that they got rid of all the other characters besides chili it was just i remember i mean i've only seen it the once and i think it i was in high school at the time yeah it i remember it just being so over the top gross and not I mean, a, a sequel in character name only. Like, there's yeah. nothing about the tone that is similar to what Get Shorty is doing. It's a lot of excess. I remember it being, like, really, really gross towards women. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but, like... Wouldn't surprise I me. I had such a visceral reaction to hating the movie. That's a bummer. It's a real bummer. Can mm-hmm. I mention the one place that I am genuinely shocked it wasn't nominated? Yes. Because, I mean, this category, I will also say, (laughs) has made this era of movie, like, difficult for our selection choices. Oh, I know what you're you're talking about. And I'm glad that we can bring this up and, like, talk about this category when it existed. This is during the mid-90s era when the best score category was split into two. You had drama and you had musical or comedy. It's such a distinctive score. And the score is, like, really good and fun and, like... So it's interesting, right? So the original decision to split the ca- the score category between dramatic and musical or comedy was because the Disney revital- revitalization in the early 90s meant that Disney, their animated movies, were dominating the original score category because... You know, they were the musical, the great, you know, musical sensations. So, like, Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and whatnot. And I think there was, you know, dissatisfaction within the community that, like, you know, how many Oscars can Alan Menken win? And so so this year, the split into two categories worked in the way that they wanted it to, which is Pocahontas still wins for Disney in the musical or comedy score category and then dramatic score although again harvey like fucking butts in and like knocks out you know two pretty good james horner scores i will say in apollo 13 and braveheart it's probably the one thing about braveheart that i like and gets an oscar for il postino which whatever but a musical or comedy score goes to pocahontas this year and then i think this is the last time that a disney score has won original score right like not counting pixar movies um, I think starting. Well, I the mean, ma- this is the year of Toy Story. Pixar is about to take over, right? But I mean, but I think it's not until like whatever that Randy Newman original score for I want to say Toy Story three or whatever one original score. Um, so it's only split for three years, right? It's all in the mid nineties, and it makes our purposes a lot more difficult because yeah. it gets a lot of movies nominated that have no other nominations. Unstrung Heroes, the the Thomas Newman score for the movie Unstrung Heroes, which I'm pretty sure was directed by Diane Keaton, if I'm not mistaken. It was. 
I am fully positive that I have seen Unstrung Heroes, and I remember nothing about it. So after the 95, the Disney movies become less dominant. And, like, Hunchback of Notre Dame is nominated, but it loses to Rachel Portman's score for Emma, which is pretty cool. Like, good for Emma. Um, it means we can't do Emma for the podcast. I'm just realizing that right now. I know. An Oscar. Um, and then the next year... The only animated nominee that year is actually Anastasia, which was DreamWorks, right? Fox. Fox. Um, which Pre-DreamWorks. Was, yes. You're right. It was just pre-DreamWorks. And that loses to uh, the Full Monty score. So ultimately, they stopped needing the category to essentially ace out Disney. Imagine when they were creating new categories to ace out Disney movies instead of uh you know make room for them oh no it was still mm-hmm. around in 98 because shakespeare in love wins the musical or comedy score that year but again beats out the disney score for mulan so yeah it's an interesting little footnote in oscar history for sure we should say the other nominees besides the winner pocahontas and unstrung heroes um the american president great sabrina score. Um, and Toy Story. Mark Shaman's score for the American President is genuinely it's wonderful. So good. Mark Shaman's American President score, if there was just one category, it should be in there. It's so good. Like, I'm just going to stop talking about it, but I'm just going to say American President deserved Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Screenplay nominations that year, and probably Best Actress. Although, Actress in 95, I. <laughs> We don't really have an entree to talk about it and get shorty and we're running out of time. But, like, can we just take a moment to note that, like, best actress that year was Susan Sarandon, Dead Man Walking, Elizabeth Shue leaving Las Vegas, Sharon Stone for Casino, which is one of my favorite little bits of, like, award season thing ever that she won the Golden Globe that year. Um, Meryl Streep for Bridges of Madison County, Emma Thompson for Sense and Sensibility, who wins in screenplay but not actress. Those five... I would argue it's great. you can't fuck with any one of those. And even on top of that, you have Annette Benning in The American President. And I'm just going to throw it out there. Kathy Bates for Dolores Claiborne, which is wildly underrated. Yes. But she's so good in that. And like that is a deep, deep category. Probably one of the deepest best actress fields of the 90s. And I mean, I would say any of those would be a fair winner. I mean, even the like taken for granted Meryl Streep nomination it's Bridges of Madison County, which, like, I don't know about our listeners or you, but, like, that's one of my favorite Merrill performances. Oh, and also the one I forgot to mention, only the Golden Globe winner in Best Musical or Comedy Actress, Nicole Kidman for die, for, for To Die For, which... Oh, God. And Tony, Another worthy winner. And Tony Collette for Muriel's Wedding and Sandra Bullock for While You Were Sleeping. You could have done a top ten that year and still, like, been fully packed with perfect performances i will argue that sandra bullock and while you were sleeping is the perfect romantic comedy actress performance i will just she say that. would be my i will just say it right now my hot take she would be my winner <laughs> what chris i knew there was a reason i did this podcast with you that is fantastic what a i'm great telling year. you like like i welled up when you mentioned her because i didn't remember that being this year because that's always my blind spot that that final wedding monologue is just like the best act she won her oscar 20 years later just for that monologue alone people pretended that it was for the blind side all right let's talk very quickly i know we're gonna go over time again you know what deal with it it got three wins at the american comedy awards that year 
which remember the do you remember the American Comedy Awards or is that just me? Okay, so this is not me. I do not remember those. I feel like they aired Oddly. on ABC for like a very short time and they were it it wasn't like I feel like they awarded things in beyond just like movies or whatever, but it was just like a time to reward comedy. And I feel like they always had fairly dubious winners exemplified this year. Not that I don't love Bette Midler in this movie, but Bette Midler in this movie is a cameo and she wins best supporting actress in a motion picture for this year. Um, And yet the same at the same time, Dennis Farina wins Best Supporting Actor for uh, for Get Shorty, and I think he's genuinely fantastic in this movie, and is not like at Dennis all Farina. not at all the kind of performance that ever wins anything. So like, I'm glad that there was something that. But he's nominated her. against Gene Hackman, and like between the two, like I think some of Dennis Farina's funniest stuff is in the first 15 minutes where he's like wearing a bunch of bandages. Fair, fully fair. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, we mentioned that this was very close to Oscar. Like, some of the other things that it had as precursors, it was nominated for Best Cast at the SAG Awards. Like, and this was back when the SAG Awards would throw, like, a couple nominations out there to, like, movies that weren't going to maybe be a slam dunk at the Oscars, but had really legitimately great casts. I remember the year that The Birdcage won, which would have been the year after this. Um like the SAG Awards used to be a lot more independent minded and they were better for it. And, but yeah, the fact that they got a cast nomination at the SAGs, it's super crazy that they got nothing at the Oscar nominations. Absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. Huge indictment. It's such a bummer. Also, I just want to say my favorite moment, the moment that made me actually yelp out loud. I had forgotten that Penny Marshall plays the director of the movie within the movie that shows up at the end and you she know, plays herself as that director you because when you see I the feel. cars pulling away, you see like their names on like their parking spot, and one of them says Penny Marshall. So she's playing herself. Penny Marshall's wonderful. career as a director, she is one of the most underrated mainstream directors of her era in the fact that nobody ever even mentions her as a director. As far as I'm concerned, if you direct a League of Their Own and Big you are a major talent and it's stupid that she made one bad movie riding in cars with boys and then has never directed a movie again. And I don't know how much of that was, you know, whether she might've chosen to downgrade her career or whatever, but it really feels like Hollywood was like, well, you made a bad movie. You can't make anything else ever again. And yet her brother, Gary Marshall, who I also love, but like was able to make mostly bad movies, crap after crap after crap and was able to keep going and God bless him for it. God bless that purveyor of garbage, but justice for Penny Marshall is all I will say. All right. You want to play the IMDb game? Yeah. Do you want to explain what the IMDb game is while I take a sip of my water? Yes. Okay. So the IMDb game, we always end our episodes with it. The IMDb game, the objective is one of us will try to quiz the other on a famous performer. We stick to actors and what their top four titles are on IMDb, also known as their known four. Yes. Um, Caveats being, um, we mention if there is voiceover work or any television work we try to stay away from harry potter and the marvel cinematic universe because those always go straight to the top and they are depressing makes it boring all right i have one for you you have one for me should i give you yours first 
Yes. All right. So normally I go through a little bit of preamble and explain why I chose something that it's connected to this week's movie in some way. If I do that, it'll spoil it a little bit for you. So I'll give you the name first. And then once you guess that one, I'll explain why it's connected. So your actor is Timothy Oliphant. One of these is television. Justified. Okay, so that's the connection. Elmore Leonard wrote the short story that the television series Justified was based on, and that is why I picked Timothy Oliphant. He's so good in that show. You also picked Timothy Oliphant because you know this is going to be difficult, and I've been torturing uh-huh. him with yeah. like some difficult stuff. So I will own that. That's fine. Um, Scream 2. No. What? I know. He's a killer in Scream 2. Spoiler. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so is Laurie Metcalf. <laughs> uh, working ooh. together. I will say uh, two of these three movies are movies I legitimately love and always bring up when I talk about underrated movies. The third one I have never seen. Okay. Um, I am really trying hard. Oh, um, Catch and Release? Wasn't no. he in that Jennifer Garner movie? He was. He was the romantic lead in that movie, but that is not one of them. So now I will give you the years of the ones you haven't gotten. The oh, years I've missed two. are 2007, 2009, and 2010. So they're kind of recent. Kind of recent. So, and I should have guessed these earlier, but they're wrong anyway, so it doesn't matter. Because huh. I would have said go, because I'm remembering he's in go. It's not go. Not go. Go was um, 1999. All right. So you have failed, but I will now help you get these. One of them is a horror remake. One of them is a phenomenally fun, pulpy sort of whodunit with a lot of actors in it. And you are fully guessing up until the very end who's who's the bad guy, who are the bad guys. Um, it's on cable a lot. And I talk about it fairly often. Um Oliphant especially is looking fucking sexy as hell, but it also was the earliest time that I had ever noticed one of the big Marvel stars of our day in a movie. I I am at an utter loss right now. It um, takes place on the islands of Hawaii. Oh, Chris. The you... only thing I can think of with an island in it, I know he's not in. I'm thinking of the ruins. No, he's not in that. Um, you've not. not in you've that. maybe not seen this movie. I'm. Oh, it bums me out. I've maybe not seen, seen Timothy Oliphant in anything in the past. Like, oh, um, he was in that, um, like bad movie that had Tina Fey and uh, Jason Bateman. Uh, this yeah, is where I leave you. But it's not that either. Um, that was like okay. 20, 2015. Okay, so the one on Hawaii years you're probably not going to get. It was a perfect getaway. Have you ever seen a perfect getaway? I don't know what a perfect getaway is. Chris, I'm going to throw you off of this podcast if you don't like make this right within the next couple of weeks. It's so good. It's so fun. It is. It's a great time. It's a great time at the movies. Also starring Chris Hemsworth, Steve Zahn, Mila Jovovich, Marley Shelton, Keely Sanchez. It's a very good movie. Um, all right. So the horror. Mila Jovovich just like randomly makes a million movies a year and they're all bad. But I guess this is good. The horror remake was well reviewed but sort of under the radar. And the original movie was like, you know it if you're like really into horror, but like probably not. Um, Rada Mitchell played his wife. He's not in, no, that's not a remake. I was thinking of Silent Hill. Um, no. Russian Who's in this movie besides 
Danielle Panabaker. That's not going to help you. It's about a bunch of people in a small town who, like, go sort of zombie-esque, but it's like a government experiment with the water supply. Not oh, the Hills Have Eyes, because he's no. not in that, and that's not that doesn't match. Joe um, Anderson's in it, speaking of the ruins. He's the sheriff. Yeah, you're not going to get I genuinely don't know what this is. Did you ever see The Crazies? No. Oh, two movies you have to see. The Crazies is really good. Okay. The third one is um, a bad action movie that got, I'm pretty sure, a sequel. That is the name of the sequel. Yeah, the name of the sequel is the name of his character. Is like the original title of the movie, colon, the name of his character. It's an action movie. He's got a bald head in it. Hitman? Yeah. Is Hitman. that him? Yes. Hitman was him. Okay. Boy, Timothy wow. Elephant was the wrong one to give to you, huh? No, I earned that. I earned <laughs> I earned this utter face plant. I promise I will be nice to you. I'm being nice to you this week. You are. I can say that. You are. Um so You have you know, two assignments though coming off of this. You really have to see a perfect getaway. I'm just okay. saying. I think our listeners are also gonna have that assignment because if I haven't heard of it, I'm gonna guess our listeners haven't heard of it. Oh, it's so good. It's on HBO all the time. Okay. All right. Well, hey, I'll check it out. Okay. So, yours, who I think is much easier, and hopefully <laughs> we have like met some level ground here, okay. where we don't feel like we have to be mean to each other anymore in the IMDb game. Okay. I didn't think that was mean, I'm... by the way, but okay. Well, I just didn't. I guess I don't know. Okay. Um, okay. So I mentioned earlier one of my bonkers Twitter faves is Anthony Hopkins, oh. nominee for this year for Nixon. Joseph Reed, your IMDb game is Anthony Hopkins. Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Mission Impossible 2? No. Okay. Forgot he was in that. Yeah. All right. I'm trying to think of where to go with mainstream Hopkins. Um, I was worried about looking this one up because I thought there would be TV, but Westworld is not one of them. Is it also Red Dragon? No. Okay, give me years. Uh, oh, oh, well, I guess that's two. Um, 2001, 2012, 1997. Oh, okay, so 2001 is Hannibal. I went for the wrong other Hannibal. Yes. What are the other two years? 2012 and 1997. Oof. Okay, 97. Hopkins in 97. Post-Nixon. The Edge? Yes, I thought that would be the hard one. I, the Edge shows up for Baldwin, I think, too. Like, The Edge is a weirdly, like, prominent movie in the IMDb game. Um, also strangely written by David Mamet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then 2012, you said? 2012. Mother. Yes, The Edge, not endorsed by our friend Bart the Bear 2. <laughs> no, because that was Bart the Bear 1. Yeah. Yeah. They killed his dad in that movie. <laughs> Okay, so 2012 Hopkins. So this would have been like semi comeback Hopkins. Shit, it was like a big one, right? Um, to find big. Okay. Um, was it an Oscar movie? Yes, it was definitely in the conversation. Right. At least I mean, like. It was one of those things that it was, like, in the conversation, always kind of looming, and then when people saw it, they were like, oh, I don't know, and then it stuck around 
for a longer time than I think a lot of people wanted it to. Oh, golly. Okay. Yeah. Shit. And it was eventually nominated, but not in the terms that we, like, originally thought it would be. Acting nomination? No. No. But the acting nomination was... Um, the thing that kind of kept it in the conversation, strangely, because people thought that it would be him and it was someone else who was getting noticed. So someone from that movie got an acting nomination. Not at Oscar, no. It got nominated for a craft category. Okay. It has a big cast of famous names. Yeah. I, see, the movie that keeps... It's a biopic. The, the movie that keeps jumping in to my head is the butler but that's not that year and i don't know if if he even he's even in the butler it's a i feel like he was one of those people that was cut out of the butler because there's a strange like high number of people that were in the butler until they were cut out i think yeah i think that's like robin williams was cut out of that movie all right big cast biopic fuck it deals with oscar history slightly oh wait saving mr banks no, he, no, he that's that? uh, no, and that's and that's not also that year. later. That's not that year. Um, okay, I will say the nomination it got. It got nominated for makeup. But J. Edgar is not that year, and he's not in that. No, but Anthony Hopkins was in <gasps> oh. said makeup. Oh, uh, it's the it's the Hitchcock movie. It's Hitchcock. Yep. Why is that one of his four movies? I have no idea. That's fully stupid. Notedly, like as soon as people saw it, they were like, "Oh, this is absolute trash. It's out of the conversation." But, but you're then right. Helen Mirren yep. kept getting like big nominations. Yep. Like the Oscar was the only like big prize she wasn't nominated for. Yep. Which is the second time that's happened to her in the last ten years because that also happened to her for, uh, uh, fucking Hedda Hopper. What was she? The movie she played? Oh Hedda God, Hopper. Trumbo. Right, Trumbo. My, absolute nemesis in commerce exactly um boy that was an unexpectedly challenging set of imdb game nominee or uh selections for us so see and i thought i went easy on you so i guess that means that we are still at war sometimes the obvious ones are also very hard especially when they're asking me to remember hitchcock but anyway, that was very good. Thank you, Chris. That is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Christopher, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Vfile. That's F-E-I-L. You can also find me at the Film Experience talking about soundtracks, Oscar ephemera, and lots of other film-related things wonderful i am also on twitter i'm at joe reed reed is spelled r-e-i-d i'm also every day and night and morning and sometimes when i'm sleeping found at decider.com writing about film and television and everything that you can find on streaming we would like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork dave gonzalez and gavin mevius for their technical guidance please remember to rate review and hopefully you're already subscribed to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We don't judge, just listen to us. A five-star review really helps us out with iTunes visibility, and we really want to be a get shorty and not a be cool in the podcasting universe, so help us out there. Once again, I'm going to say, weird gays who love the cell, we continue to want to hear from you and your stories. Your stories deserve to be told, and we want to tell them. So don't think we've forgotten you. Um, Love you, weird gays who love the cell. (laughs) Thank you for this week. You're wonderful. We hope you will be back next week for more buttons.